So excited. Thank you. Herb, that was terrible. You just made a thing in there. Hey, listen, before we start tonight, may I have one little brief moment to recognize the passing of a great man? You know who died tonight? A really great man in his own curious little quiet way. Uh, and and uh, when I was a kid, I must have been about seven or eight, and we would go down to the local movie house. I used to wait for the moments. In the, They were old pictures even then, I might hasten to assure you. They were, really. Uh, when he would show up on the screen, little brief moments. Chester Conklin. Well, he was 83. Uh, but Chester... <laughs> so don't... Uh, but Chester Conklin, 83. And uh, I just wanted to, you know, make the... I wanted to make brief mention of the fact that he, he's gone. But uh, uh, Conklin w- w- had an unforgettable face. And uh, for those of you who know, well, you know, it's it's not a, it's just uh, when you see him on the, everybody talks, you know, about the great uh, Laurel and Hardy. And I, 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 I hasten to, to point out in my usual, uh, my usual modest way that uh, a long time ago I was yelling about how groovy Laurel and Hardy is back in the days when everybody was uh, flipping over uh, Charlie Chaplin. I always thought Laurel and Hardy were much funnier, really, actually funny. Um, possibly Ch- Chaplin was more artistic in capital A's, but Laurel and Hardy, you know, they, they, you just couldn't look at them without laughing, you know. And uh, among those great characters, people like Laurel and Hardy and uh, Buster Keaton, they wouldn't have been really what they eventually were unless they were surrounded by a great horde of fantastic grotesques. They were part of that world of the absurd, you see, that that uh, Laurel and Hardy and all these others created. And Chester Conklin, if you if don't remember who he was, he had a giant walrus mustache. And he had an outrageously set of crossed eyes. I mean, <laughs> they were, they were, you remember, he had the fantastic cross eyes. And you know what he was famous for? He was famous for catching pies that there was no one ever who could catch a pie like Chester Conklin. Now, there were great pie throwers. And they got all the, you know, they get all the gravy. Everybody uh, laughs the way uh, Laurel throws the pie. But Chester Conklin was always the waiter coming out of the swinging door who caught the pie. And therefore, that is, he caught it right smack full in the proboscis, which incidentally made the pie flinging funny. It was his reaction. And uh, as a kid, little kid, I can remember this pie all over Conklin's face and dripping down off his, off his giant walrus mustache and his crossed eyes peering through a thick coating of whipped cream and his eyes looking hurt, surprised, uh, a, a note of indignation. And yet there was, a, there was a quality in his eye that said he expected it all along. And Ch- <laughs> you know he had this, that the, he was born to catch pies. I mean, he, he's never going to get the cheers. He's just going to catch the pie in the face. And uh, Chester Conklin, he was 83, and I just thought I'd, in passing, I, I would be remiss as an artist if I didn't, you know, point to to the passing of a, a really great performer, and not so much a performer, but a personage. Really, you couldn't imagine. Ch- all it would be great, Chester Conklin doing Hamlet. 
Uh, <laughs> and yet, you know, the thing about almost every actor I've ever known, they all started out just going to be an actor. And uh, they wind up this thing, see. And, and in many ways, it probably is the best thing that ever happened to him because in the end, 150 years from now, historians will be looking at films where you see this this uh, harassed waiter comes out of a swinging door and whap, and they'll be laughing at it 150 years from now because he had all the look of of the good... Did you ever hear of a, a, a great Czechoslovakian character called Schweik? Any of you know who Schweik was? The good soldier Schweik? Anybody out there know who he was? Well, the good soldier Schweik was really, in a way, Chester Conklin. He was... He was, he was the, indu uh, the indomitable private in all armies, in all wars, upon whom all indignity is heaped. And <laughs> he, uh, he is, uh, he's always there, though. He never, he never chickens out. You never, at no point does he chicken. That's where Yossarian lost the ball with me. He chickened out upon having been heaped with indignity. Uh, the thing about the good soldier Schweik, he sticks it right in the end. He's always there, you see. He survives. That's the thing that's important. And uh, this was Conklin. Conklin was always surviving. He would get hit with seven pies. And in the, in the last scene, we see him back in the kitchen getting ready with his tray to go out again into the restaurant. Uh, he persists in trying to, trying to deliver the chicken Kiev in spite of the fact that now the restaurant is a battlefield of blueberry pies. And he goes back and gets his chicken Kiev and comes back out again. And whap! And so tonight, uh, give me my uh, the Hammond High fight song. We must give him a, a brief, but a very hard... So tonight, all flags flying, mustache rickling, bristling with indignation, his eyes outrageously crossed, his legs somewhat rubbery, his coat a little bit too long and saggy around the back. Chester Conklin enters heaven. And as he passes through the pearly gates, the great judge looks down and says, Chester Conklin, and what did you do on earth? And he flicks his mustache a bit, as he always did with a twitch. Looks up beseechingly, hoping for... A little mercy after all this time. The great doors swing open. And just as he has handed his loot, somewhere out of a mysterious golden cloud comes a hurled blueberry pie. What would he do? He would twitch his mustache and attempt to play the loot. This is his role. He must play the loop. Yeah. <laughs> he would appreciate that, I think. But, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, speaking of, uh, of uh, the theater of the absurd, which, of course, he was part of. And, and I, notice, I notice now that I've been officially accoladed that uh, role, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Uh, but... It's a it's a funny thing. I, I you know I don't often talk about uh, the events. Uh, you know, moment by moment uh, feelings that happen moment by moment in today's life. Uh, most of my work is elliptical on the air, and it's almost all 
allegorical. Certainly not to be taken literally. I hope you don't. It's allegorical in more, more ways than one. But uh, I just came back from three days that I think I ought to report to you. Three days that I will remember for a long time. And uh, three, three days of, of, of uh, one of those experiences that uh, I don't think many... Uh, there will be probably things appear in print. You'll probably see things in the print because it, ha it has to be reported. It was an event of, of strange ramifications, implications. And uh, one of those things that, that happens without much fanfare and ultimately proved to be one of the curious turning points in many guys' attitudes towards the world. And now I'll go back and, and start in the beginning and tell you what it's about. That around uh, sometime early last spring, I got a call from my editor at Playboy, who was one of the senior editors there, and he said, look, he says, I want you to keep these dates open, absolutely. He said, this is very important. You keep these dates open and be ready to come out here. Out here, meaning Chicago, which is where the magazine is edited, put together. I said, okay, what's it about? He says, well, we've had this now in the works now for over two years. We've been planning this. And we have invited what we think here in, in our magazine, in our own way, we have invited 90 of, the, of, of what we consider the world's influential writers. Now, that doesn't mean famous, influential. People who influence other writers who may become more famous, but uh, influential writers and also people who have appeared from time to time in our magazine. And we're going to have a three-day thing. Actually, it's a week. It started on Wednesday and went all the way through Sunday. And they said, we're going to bring all of you here to, to Chicago. And uh, we're going to, from wherever it might be, we're going to have, have you flown in. And we're doing it very early so everybody can clear the decks. And we're going to just sit around for three days and let all of you guys just uh, hang around, talk to each other, ride up and down the elevator with each other, and stay in this hotel. We'll have a few panel things, which are just uh, really uh, ostensible. They're like the future of sex in uh, the 70s. You know, that kind of stuff. Nobody takes it seriously. But we're going to have these panels. But the whole object is just to get together and uh, get to know each other and uh, just be around. And so I, at first it was kind of unreal to me because... You know, like an event that any, like if you're invited to somebody's wedding that's going to take place seven months from now, it isn't very real to you. You say, oh, yeah, great, great, great. And you go on your way. You don't think about it. Well, periodically, every couple of months, I would hear from my editor, and he'd say, I hope you, now, I hope you've got those dates set now. This is going to really happen, say. And even then, I wasn't putting too much reality into it. And here, at this date, now, the only reason I'm talking about it, it's just, I just got back yesterday, and I, it's still bubbling over in my mind, this whole great... Gallimaufry that I was involved in. Speaking of Gallimaufries, this is WOR New York. Would you please hit the ding-dong there, please, if you will. Coming through. Chrysler's and Plymouth for 72. Cricket. Duster. Scamp. Satellite. Fury. Chrysler. Imperial. All built to last and beautiful, too. The kinds of cars America wants today. Now at America's number one Chrysler Plymouth dealers. You have made us first place dealers throughout all the USA. Cause in Chrysler Plymouth sales we lead the way. With our guys you'll be a winner, number one in every way. That's the kind of dealer America wants today. 
three America's number one Chrysler Plymouth dealers. Your Chrysler Plymouth dealers of New York, New Jersey, and Fairfield County. Act now while the price freeze is still on. Yeah, hey, do you need uh, tires for winter? Oh, friend, don't miss General Tire's great mixer match offer. Hit it. Oh, man. Listen to that trumpets. Mixer match the Jet Air 3, General's best four-ply nylon cord tire, and the winter cleat, General's rugged four-ply nylon cord snow tire. Your choice, a two for $38, four for $76, size 650-13 tubeless black wall, plus 176 federal excise tax per tire. White walls are only $3 more each. Larger sizes are priced in this mix-or-match set. So get out there. Yeah, don't miss this great mix-or-match tire offer this month. Drive in at the big red General Tire G sign near your office or your home. Let those General Tires put you on the go, man. Okay? Hey, we have a dealer here in Maplewood, New Jersey. See Dicker Herb at World Tire Company, 1725 Springfield Avenue. In Manhattan, Joe D. Simone, or Pat Sullivan at General Tire Service, 835 11th Avenue. Okay, we get another thing out of the way here before we get uh, deeply involved in this, this, this strange hallucinatory event. This is truly a hallucinatory event. By hallucinatory, it seemed very unreal. To all the people who were there, it, it began... Have you ever gone to an, a party that starts out like a party? And everybody's kind of formal, right? And the people walk around, especially if it's people you don't really know. You just know of, you heard about them. And then slowly that changes. That's the beauty of having something that goes on for four or five days. By the end of the second day, you know, you're starting to call guys Big Charlie. Yeah, how are you, Fred? You know? And uh, by the end of the third day, you have been together so long, it's like veterans of the War of the Roses. And it's all stripped off. All the defenses that everybody has have gone down the drain, especially after enough Jack Daniels has crossed the Formica. And, uh, <laughs> and by the fifth day, it is, it is just, you know, it's the whole thing. It's different. We're riding along on a bus drinking cheap wine, and I'm pounding Arthur C. Clarke on the back, saying, Yo, son of a gun, knock it off! And uh, it's just, <laughs> it's just a wild, wild, wild uh, thing. And I'm sure that all the guys that are back now at home, wherever they might be, are still trying to sort out their curious memories. But before we, before I get too involved in this, I have a, a really, in, uh, to me, an important note. Uh, this Saturday, mark it down on the thingy there, this Saturday, I'm going to be at Bloomfield College, and a lot of people on the book signings are asking when the next college date is going to be. We're going to be at Bloomfield, October 16th, that's this Saturday, at Bloomfield College in the gym there, in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Now write this number down. Don't call us. Write this number down. For information on the tickets, call area code 201. I'll give you time to come out of the town and get your pencil, okay? Area, <laughs> area 201. And the number in area 201 is 748-9000. That's the school, of course. You, you clod. I repeat again. It's area code 201, and the number is 748-9000. Do not call the station, please, because they don't know anything. In fact, they think I'm working at WNEW. So uh, give them a call, and, uh, and they'll give you the dope. That's Bloomfield College, Saturday, the 16th of October. And incidentally, I will that afternoon, I'm going to be at the Bloomfield College bookstore, Knox Hall, 
and we're going to be writing suitable obscenities for those who desire it in Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories. I'll autograph your thing there at the Bloomfield College Bookstore, Knox Hall. Now, that's the same day. That's this Saturday between 3 and 5 p.m., right? Okay. All right, now, I'll let that soak in, in just in time for somebody to call up now and say, What did he say? Did he say that he was going to be in Bloomerberg College in Bloomerberg, New Jersey? No, no, you just missed it. The, the train has gone by again. <laughs> but uh, what the story is, I want to get... Do you want to hear about this thing? Well, I, I'm going to tell you about it whether you like it or not, because this, this has got to go down. It's got to be reported. Anyway, uh, this went on for weeks, months, uh, getting these calls. And as the time grew closer, of course, I had a lot of problems. My book came out the week uh, about the... Let's see, in the end of September, in the middle of September. And this thing was to be in October. I hadn't even thought about that when I made the commitment. And uh, we were all over Jersey, of course, doing book signings. And the book is, you know, bestseller and all that jazz. And a fantastic uh, problem with time. Every place, uh, interviews and stuff. Well, then all of a sudden, it was the time to go. And and, uh, it just seemed to be the wrong time for me, you know, all in the middle of everything. Well, I wouldn't have missed it. Or almost, it like, uh, you know, it's like saying you wouldn't miss the Civil War. I wouldn't have missed it. Because the day that I came out, I, got, I went out to the airport. I was still a lone person, see, LaGuardia Airport got out there. And uh, flew to Chicago, and I took a cab into the loop. And I checked in. At the, they were going to hold this at Playboy Towers, which is a big hotel. It's a big hotel there, see, so I checked in. And I went up the elevator, and there was a girl sitting up there on the floor where we were supposed to gather, the 10th floor. And she's at a desk there, and she hands me a big folder, which was going to be my equipment for the week, which included uh, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, seminar programs and that jazz. You see, all very official stuff, and a list of all the different guys who were going to be there, what rooms they were in, where you could call them. And it didn't seem like anything more than a lot of mimeograph paper. And I went into my room... And I, I, there was the room, and I threw the stuff down, took up, threw my bag on the bed, and uh, came back out again. And it looks just like a hotel up to this point. I decided to take the, the elevator down to the main floor. I was going to pick something up, and I get in the main floor elevator. And incidentally, in each one of our envelopes was a name tag. It proved to be very important later. The name tag was a black plastic name tag, just had a little bunny on it, you know, a little bunny insignia. And your name in stark white letters. Well, it was black. I didn't realize the significance of that because they had several colors of name tags. Black name tag, of course, meant official writer. This is one of the writers. They had... No, no, it was very interesting. Well, it was important for later what happened. Don't laugh. Just because they were right in this. Black name tag. Brown name tag, which was looked like walnut colored, meant staff. You know, like the people who work on the magazine, editors and so forth. And the, they had a, a white name tag, which meant press. These were people who were invited to cover the event. Well, I get in the elevator, and there's this elder. The first thing that happened to me, there's this elderly gentleman in the elevator, distinguished-looking old duck with uh, gray hair, sort of do, stooped over, the kind of guy you just don't... You know, there he is in the elevator. You don't pay much attention to him much. He's this elderly gentleman... And he's got an iron gray suit. He's got a very sad expression on his face. He's got these rimless glasses. And I glance over, and I see that the that the name is Sean O'Phelan. 
on his name tag. Well, now, you may not know who Sean O'Fallon is. He's one of the world's great short story writers. Do you agree, Lee? He's Irish. He's as Irish as Patty's pig, as a matter of fact, but at this point he just looked like a distinguished old duck, see? Now, look at his Sean O'Fallon scene. He looks over and he sees my name tag. And we're both riding alone in the elevator. This is my first experience in this, this fantastic event. And he says to me, um, he says, for the convocation. I said, yes. He looks again at my main, my name tag, and then he, then he comes out with his bomb. He says, you know, I wish they had given me a tag that said H.G. Wells on it. He says, then they would have listened to me. <laughs> I started to laugh. He says, oh, I expect to see someone walk along that says, uh, Bob Browning, call me Robert. And uh, so we we got out of the elevator. For that minute, that we were close friends. <laughs> I'd see him all the time. He'd just wink. Well, we, we we went down to the bar, and there, holding forth at the bar, is one of America's leading poets. Who I will not, I will not. Uh, let's put it this way: he's one of America's leading poets. He's drunker than a skunk. So uh, he, I come up, and he looks like an insurance man. See, he doesn't look like what you would think one of America's leading poets look like. So. I come up to the bar there. This is the first minute. I'm, I'm just you saying at this point, I've been very skeptical about going to this thing. So I come up to the bar, and I got on my name tag. He says, hey, you're Gene Shepard, huh? I says, yes, I am. I, I, I figured, you know, he's going to tell me to go get him a drink or something. He says, I like your stuff. You know, man, I like your stuff. I, you come over here, man, and come over. I like your stuff. I love that one day. Hickey, come over here, man. I want to kiss you. Oh. Well, there I am being kissed by America's leading poet in a bar in the middle of the loop in Chicago. And I've just been, you know, I've just been Sean O'Fallon, who says he wished they'd give him an H.G. Wells button. And uh, and I'm thinking, I want, you know, I wonder if the New York New York com- book, commentary on books knows about this world. <laughs> they don't. Well, ten minutes later... I'm upstairs in the writer's lounge, which only right at the black tag meant only writers could come in this lounge, by the way, which is groovy because all the staff, the editors, even my editor was kept out. So you go into this lounge and you throw your feet up, and they had a continuous running bar, which ran 24 hours a day. And they must have given, I mean, they must have handed out seven, I would say seven tank cars of Jack Daniels. And I have come to one conclusion. All you guys that hang around the lion's head who think you're in in the literary hot world, the real, the real world of literary people does not drink scotch nor vodka. Man, it is sour mash bourbon all the way. So I, I go into this room, and, and I'm sitting there, and at this, sit down in the, the leather chair, and I, I'm, 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 I'm savoring this first sour mash there with a little ice in it, a little twist of lemon, kind of enjoying it, you know. And the uh, guy comes down, sits down next to me. And uh, he says, you know, this is quite a thing. And I said, it certainly is. So, wow. So I had no idea it was going to be like this when I, when I decided to come. He said, this, this is the best thing I've ever been in my life. I said, yeah, it is. Well, he, he happened to be not a sour mash man. He happened to be a gin man. And uh, he was going away at the gin there very, very, uh, let's put it this way, diligently. And uh, I said, you know, I like your stuff. I said, I had to come out with it. There, he's got this name tag. I said, you know, I really like your stuff. And uh, he, says, uh, he says, well, I said, I might as well tell you. He said, I like yours, too. He said, but, uh, you know, he said, uh, in Ceylon, 
it's hard to explain to the natives in Ceylon uh, what a, what the what the prom is. You know <laughs> what it means. I was talking to Arthur C. Clarke. Well, for you know who he is, 2001. In case you don't know who Mr. Clark is, very interesting man. And and from that time on, it was all the way. It was Goesville for for four straight days, and the final evening, the final night. Now you've been in parties, haven't you? Well, I'll tell you some of the people who were there. They ranged all the way from Cheever uh, through. Old friends of mine. I'm not. Try- I hope I'm, I'm not uh, giving you the idea. I'm dropping names. People I've known in the past, one way or another. But uh, things have changed over the years, and and uh, we all go our separate ways. You know, that's one thing about the difference between the writing world of England. We'll say it must have been different because you read about the writing world of England. People like uh, uh, Boswell talking about uh, Johnson's world, and they all seem to come into contact with your little world. It was a nice, tight little island. In fact, this is uh, even uh, glancingly referred to in Shakespeare, this this uh, tight little island. And they are, you know, and, they're, they're, and that meant one really a tight little... Even even if you were living far away in England, you were only uh, a couple of hundred miles at the most away out of London, you see. But in, in America and in the world of the writing, the writing world today, there's no such thing. Just, now, there may be little enclaves like... Uh, you know, the little Gloria Steinem enclave in New York, but that's nothing compared to the world writers where people like V.S. Pritchett, who, by the way, is a very funny guy. His wife is one of the funniest ladies I've ever met, and she looks, you know, the tweed skirt type lady. You know who V.S. Pritchett is? And uh, <laughs> the last day when our bus is going to, to uh, O'Hare and Mrs. V.S. Pritchett, we had had a big thing the first day and I hadn't seen her for the next four days. And she says to me, I remember you. She says, it wasn't seven, eight years ago? And I said, no, it was it was Wednesday. She says, that's what I mean. She says, it seems like a hundred years ago because so many things happened in the, in, the, in the wild melee that went on. Can you imagine sitting at a table with Jules Dassin and Melina McCurry and she keeps spilling wine on you and hollering, darling, I am so Greek. I feel the Greek coming out. <laughs> I keep saying, quit with the wine. It's it's dripping on my knee now. And I've got to be in Bob Cromie's show in a half an hour with the wine dripping off my knee. Well, later on, the uh, the, the culmination of it, I, I should build it bit by bit. Uh, the, the sex panel was a fantastic thing. I discovered one thing, that people who write endless tomes about sex statistical endless tomes. You know, the, the Masters Syndrome, the, the Kinsey Syndrome. These people aren't interested in sex. They're interested in statistics. And that's a very different thing. And so here are these five people up here, the most stone-faced, tight-looking people you ever saw in your life. And they're famous writers on sex. And all the while, I had the vague suspicion, and this was in a hotel, that two floors above us, somebody was doing something about it. And that, that was where the real thing was going on. And this, the opening line, this very famous lady who writes on all, in all the magazines on sex, began with this line. She didn't realize how funny she was. You know the kind of lady that wears space shoes? You know the kind? And that has severely cropped hair and so forth and keeps talking about eroticism? Well, uh, she opened her mouth, and she was the first to speak. And she says, I believe that we should all consider sex on a continuum curve A through D well she started to draw the continuum curve and at that point I turned and left the room and five minutes later me and Leroy Neiman are down on the bar 
talking about the sex continuum, A through D curve over bourbon. But uh, <laughs> it was that kind of uh, that kind of open line. And then, then we began to see, as, a, as a myself and a couple of Brock Yates, who was one of my buddies in this thing, Brock, who writes for uh, Car and Driver and a lot of other magazines, uh, other people who were official types there, like Schlesinger, Galbraith, and so on. And we found, you know, I began to realize they don't know any more about the world than I do. They don't. And it's a terrible discussion, awful, awful realization to sit in a room and find out some great pundit is saying, I don't care what they say. Don't bother me with facts. And he's, you know, he's three sheets to the wind. And you suddenly realize that, man, talk about the blind leading the blind, but it doesn't matter. We're all blind. So what difference does it make? You know, we like to assume that there's somebody who knows. <laughs> And he can set the world straight. Oh, forget it. They're all part, they're all people like us, you know. If if uh, Melana McCurry comes in and bites your ear, you're going to say good things about the Greek about the Greek Revolution, man. No matter what, if you've got glands. So uh, <laughs> this this great uh, great it was like a great bubble. And so I I had a little thing I was going to talk there. I was supposed to do a little bit. In my my little see I was in the humor category. See. And we humorists are always in battle because it's always believed that humor writers are not uh, are not serious writers. You know, Matt Hentoff's a serious writer, and which means you know the quantity of kvetch you can put in your work means that's the quantity of seriousness that you're involved in. This is the New York Review of Book Syndrome again, you know. And so we humorists are a little band of malcontents that are always gathering, and it actually works this way: gathering over in the corner, cackling. Me and Marv Kitman, for example, <laughs> were constantly nudging each other, say, we couldn't help it. But then there's the official humorist who really believes he's official. You know, he takes him so serious. Buck Waltz, so he's, he's hanging with the Galbraiths and all that. And uh, me and Kitman and the others are over in the corner. So listen to that one, you know. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, wow. What a cartoon that would make. And, I, and so we keep laughing. Well, well, I, I, I couldn't help but think about it. You see, here, here are all these guys, half of them, you know, They've been drinking bourbon now for three straight days and gin and what have it. And uh, they're all gathered in this room. And I got up and I says, you know, fellas, uh, only one thing. I said, there have been so many profound remarks made here in the last three days. Profundities were hanging like grapes from the wall. I said, uh, I just couldn't help but think. But I says, here, look, in this room. I said, one hand grenade could change the entire course of, of, of world literature. <laughs> Boom! And it's all over. I said, do you realize what this could happen? You, you just don't know what could happen. And uh, there was a, a, sh a slight moment where the three or four guys got green for a second. They thought maybe I was going to show them this. You know, I was going to whip out the grenade and toss it. And uh, I, I, it just w rolled on and on like this. I hope you, this isn't boring you, but this is, this is an event that must be reported. And down in the bar that later that afternoon, it was not all bars, I might point out. There were people hanging around with each other and just sitting and talking. It was a fantastic experience. You know, to sit as a writer and talk to guys as diverse. You know, writers recognize each other's work, even if readers don't, because as a professional, they recognize what you do. It's just like a, you take a pitcher sitting in the stands. He's recognizing what another pitcher is doing out there, even if the fan doesn't know it. So... You know, sitting with with people like like uh, and, and 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 on no sense uh, a, a rank situation here, not at all. Professionals gathered. I've never seen anything quite like it, where where you can sit and talk to a uh, as diverse people 
as, let's say, Kenneth Tynan and Arthur C. Clarke. Clark, you know, flew in from Salon for the thing. And we were talking about Salon and living in Salon and stuff and, and the hallucinations, that, you know, the hallucinatory quality of life for a Western man living in Salon. And he says, you know, it's funny. He said, I read, I read The Mole People. Just a short story I had in Playboy a couple of months back. And he says, I was sitting in, in, on my veranda. And he said, it was quiet. It was after I finished work. And he said, I was sitting on, on the veranda there. And he said, I was having a, a sundowner. He's an elegant guy, very funny guy, too. And he said, I was having a sundowner. And he said, you know, and here was Salon all around me. And he said, I read The Mole People. And he said, I couldn't help but think. And he said, here are all these people who are my friends around me, the Salonese and so on. They there's no way, no conceivable way, they could have even guessed what, <laughs> you know, the life in a boys' camp in, in, uh, in Michigan, uh, the mole people battle the forces of die. He said, I'm laughing, and he says, and it just hit me how unbelievably uh, remote parts of the world and people are from one another. And he said, there I'm laughing. He said, that's something that that a guy who's worked for me for nine years in my house couldn't even remotely understand. And he was, we were talking about that thing. And uh, he's, he was talking about, sp we had on the subject of space, I happen to like his writing. He's one of the few uh, science fiction writers that I like as a writer. I think he's, there's a lot of stuff he writes that I really, I like as a writer. And uh, apart from the ideas that he throws out, which are often great, but he was saying, you know, he said, I think we're in the same boat. And I said, why? He says, well, people who write about the kind of thing I write about, he says, uh, they're never official writers. He <laughs> said, merely because I deal with space and science fiction, what they call science fiction, it's kind of a put-down. And he said, you deal with humor. And, of course, you know, it's kind of a put-down, too. So we sat there, and uh, all the while, uh, people kept drifting in and out with their name tags on it, and the uh, strange people. You see, a, you see a, a, an eminent a short story writer for The New Yorker, uh, who is uh, kind of out of it now, you know. And he's just there as sort of a writer emeritus, and he's sitting over in the corner, and he's looking vaguely unhappy, and and uh, he's uh, trying to make the scene with a bunny who's going by, and, and uh, you begin to see where his work came out. And, and I've read all of his work, and I can see that his work really was totally autobiographical because his people are all that way. They're unhappy suburbanite guys who are always trying to to, uh, to to get to be part of the world of the babysitter who comes in, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, here it was happening right before me. And uh, all, all the, the, uh, the, whole, the, whole, uh, the whole afternoon, that, that particular afternoon, there's sometimes, of course, when you have close friends, uh, like Gay Talese is an old... Do you remember that one of the first pieces ever done on me in New York was done by Gay Talese, and where did it appear? Do any of you know? It appeared in the Times, and the reason I'm mentioning it now, it uh, this is the time. This is World Series time, right? It appeared on the opening game of the World Series on the sport page with a picture. Do you remember that? And it was done by Gay Talese. And we've been very good friends ever since, and there's a lot has happened, of course. And so little anecdotes come across uh, like this. I was walking... I, I saw Talese in the in the elevator again. We were always meeting in the elevator because everybody was going up and down all the time. Uh, it wasn't so much a matter of table hopping there. It was it was floor hopping. <laughs> Guys were going up because they were all on different floors. They, so uh, we're always in the elevator going up and down. And I meet Gay, and I said, uh, Gay's looking 
uh, we're laughing about this fantastic thing we're involved in. And he's a great guy. So he said, uh, you know, I said, how are you doing? And, and he said, I saw Wanda's on the bestseller list. And I said, yeah. I said, what do you say to you, though? You know, <laughs> He sort of shrugged his shoulders. And I said, you know, gay is funny. I said, you ever get over to the Mayflower Donut Shop anymore? And he says, oh, man. You see, I also used to see Gay at, back in the days when we were both scratching in the Mayflower Donut Shop. Uh, at 59th or is it 60th there at uh, on 5th Avenue you know on the corner there right by F.A.O. Schwartz and uh, and I used to see Gay there all the time and one day I'm walking across the street there it was a cold winter miserable day in fact you were with me on that day Lee and uh, I said to Gay uh, he, I, Gay, Gay's coming across the street he's quit the times now so he's not he's freelancing at this point and he's not uh, you know it's tough freelancing so he, uh, I see him coming across the street, and I says, how are you, Gay? And he says, gee, Chef, how are you? Let's have a cup of coffee in the Mayfire Donut Shop. So we go into the donut shop, and I said to him, what are you doing? He says, well, so I, th- I think I, I'm thinking I'm going to do a book on the Times. And uh, talk about clouded crystal ball. Listen, I said, I think I'm going to do a book. He says, you know, the trouble doing a book on the Times, you probably, you know, it's such a limited uh, uh, interest. If, you know, after all, only the only people, a few people in New York are reading the Times, and they say... It's a, it's a limit. He said, but I want to do it. He said, I really think it's, it's a fascinating phenomenon, the whole thing at the Times. I want to do this thing. And uh, he said, probably won't sell 12 copies, but uh, I'll, feel, I'll get it off my chest anyway. And I said, well, that's a trouble. I said, guys are always going after stuff that, you know, that, that limited stuff. I said, you know, you sit around, you invented a, a system to, uh, to turn cheese into, into gophers, and then it turns out nobody cares, you know. And uh, he said, yeah, that's the way it is. So we sat there and drank this coffee. And I met him in the elevator, and after all this stuff has happened, I says, uh, yeah, I said, Gay, who the hell cares about a book about the times? <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, it's just these little anecdotes. Uh, you know, you, it's, I think one of the sad things about today's world of writing and the literary world, really, and uh, which, incidentally, for your benefit, outside of New York, probably most of people in New York think of me as a, as a guy on the radio. They don't... Uh, but outside of New York and all around the world and areas where Playboy and various magazines and Wanda Hick in, and uh, in God We Trust, you know, I ran into In God We Trust in, in Athens. They know they know me. It's a, I'm a writer, you see, and that's really what I am ultimately. So uh, it's it's funny when you when you when you realize how little contact among all the of the real serious professions, the lonely professions in the world. This is a lonely world of when you're writing. Uh, when I'm working on a, on a story, I mean, you, you can't understand the loneliness that's involved in it. Lonely because there's only one person can do it. And uh, it's like inexorable. And it's, it's difficult, really. But the thing that, I, I, that hit me, what a remarkable thing this was that we went through. In fact, uh, Gay mentioned this. Uh, Clark mentioned it. Uh, Ken Purdy, who came from England to be part of this thing, he mentioned it. People came from all over the world. Nat Hentoff was there. He met, and certainly Jules Pfeiffer, who was an old buddy of mine from the Village Voice. We sat in a room with a couple of girls and talked about it. And that we all came to one conclusion: that that the one profession today, really, uh, and it is a profession. Let's face it, that doesn't really have any crosstalk much, except through their work. You know, you see a guy's work. Is the world of literature writing? Uh, Doctors continually have uh, conventions. Uh, it's it's uh, 
film people have conventions. Everybody goes to the Cannes Film Festival, and everybody who's in the serious world of films is there. And this is, in effect, a convention. They wind up and spend a week there, and uh, they run around and talk and make contacts and exchange ideas and the whole thing. And it's very stimulating. You have no idea how, after you've spent a, a, a time like this with people who are also writing, how, how, how excited you are about getting back to work. I'm sure that there are a lot of guys tonight working at a 100% at greater effort and output and, and exhilaration than they were just a week ago, just because of this curious thing. Now, it was held by Playboy, and because it was held by Playboy, it would not get the New York Times press. It's, it's simply a fact, and everybody agreed this. It says, you know, if the New Yorker did a thing like this, there would be international headlines about it. There would. And I'm sure that most of you don't know, have no idea, but it was never mentioned in the New York papers, as far as I know. But most of the New York writers, I'll tell you who was there from New York, if you're curious who the writers were from New York. There was Gay, Gay Talese. There was David Halberstam. Uh, a lot of writers from New York. I don't want to slight anybody. Uh, Nat Hentoff, Jules Pfeiffer. I'd have to be considered a New York writer. Uh, dozens of writers from New York of all types, and Brock Yates. Uh, all kinds of writers that you only you see the names and they drift on by, editorial writers like uh, Halberstam sitting around talking to humorists like myself, uh, humorists like talking to science fiction writers, and it was a fantastic event. I I, I just just I'm sure that 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 the that the results of this thing are not yet heard, and I imagine 20 years from now memoirs will be popping out about this curious thing. And the memoirs will have a, have a strange other world quality about them. Because there were, there were always comments all the way through, up and down the, up and down the uh, corridors. And there were odd people showed up. People like Roman Polanski, you know, Sher the, the husband of the late Sharon Tate, who is the Polish film director, and Kenneth Tynan. It uh, was a strange cross pollinization of millions of ideas and curious minds. And, and, uh, we're all reduced to one final a human equation, sitting around on, on stools in front of a bar, lapping. And, and it was great to sit with a, to sit with Jules Dassin. Listen to this, the otherworldly Jules Dassin. All of a sudden, the, 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 the World Series came on, and he stopped being European. He says, those damn Baltimore Orioles! And we're sitting there, and his wife, Melanie McCurry, she could have said, what is this? This is a beach ball. <laughs> and... and uh, I, I came away feeling as though, my God, the world is human after all, you know? There's hope for all of us. <laughs>